We're right here in the heart of the retreat. Today, tonight, tomorrow, and um, I really feel it. I really feel you settling. Mary Mary came on the land and said, how many nights have they been here? They seem so landed. And um, today I've just been reflecting some after Brian's talk last night on the, the presence of lineage, especially the, the Thai forest tradition and the kind of strength, really, and blessing I feel when I feel myself as part of something so much larger than just my own nuclear self. And um, as just kind of with the eclipse, you know, reflecting as I often do about the lineage of this land and wondering what it would have been like for an Anasazi person who was just going about living their life, you know, on this land in some form to witness an eclipse. You know, I mean, maybe they knew that that was happening ahead of time, maybe not. I don't know, but there certainly wasn't the internet to let them know. <laughs> but just what it would be like going about, you know, gathering food and, and watching the light change and, you know, experiencing some of what we experienced yesterday from a framework of their own lives. So I'm just appreciating both the lineage of um, our practice and Dharma tradition and the lineage of this land. And any time we sense into lineage, there, there can just be a possibility. I mean, lineage is not all perfect. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to idealize. But there can just be a, a strength and a resting in something that is larger that holds us. And, you know, we know that the Buddha was born in the forest. The Buddha got enlightened in the forest. The Buddha gave his first teaching in the forest. And he died in, in the forest. And um, I was remembering a, a story about in Thailand some years ago when the forests were being clear-cut and it was it was impacting a lot of beings, naturally. It was impacting the, um, the monks in the Thai forest tradition because there's not a lot of places to walk and practice as more and more clear-cutting is happening. And some of you may know that they started ordaining trees. Do you know that? Did you hear the stories about how the monks would wrap a saffron robe, like a, a piece of a saffron robe, saffron cloth, around the trees? And um, because of the beliefs, um, the cultural beliefs, and because of the beliefs that the devas, the nature spirits, were inhabiting the trees, the loggers couldn't cut them down. So it's like this beautiful, nonviolent act of, um, you know, on behalf of, of wild nature. And, and I came across this interview with. Ajahn Pasano, some of you know Ajahn Pasano, he's part of, he's part of Abhayagiri, right? Yeah, and uh, he was interviewing Julia Butterfly Hill, and she was speaking about her journey, um, her journey, you know, living up in Luna, and how 
it came down to being a practice of love for her. She was talking about, um, I just want to share a few of her words with you. They struck me. She says, when I climbed up in that tree, I was new to activism, but I soon realized that we had become so good at defining what we were against, that what we were against was beginning to define us. I saw the problem in meetings where activists were clear-cutting each other with their words and their anger. As people were talking, I could literally hear the chainsaws in their words cutting each other apart. I saw that the peace rallies had become anti-war rallies, places where I couldn't even walk up close to the rally because of the way people were speaking through the megaphone. It sounded like they were dropping bombs. And she goes on to say this all became clear to me about halfway through my time in the tree when I was experiencing a lot of pain and I really felt like I was falling apart. You know how that feels. That's when I went deeper and I realized I climbed up in the tree not because I was angry at corporations and governments, although I was angry at them, but because I love the forest and I love the planet and I love the sacred life that we're all a part of. And so I began to approach all the issues from that place of love. And I think her words are, are, are good medicine, are good guidance for us, because it always makes sense to approach the issues, personal issues, larger issues from, from a place of love. And to do that, to really come from a place of love, we are, that asks us to look at our deepest uh, reactivity. And the Buddhist teachings give us a kind of technology, a kind of precision to, uh, to do that. And tonight, I want to speak about one thread that, we can, that you can work with in your practice to begin to untangle the reactivity. And this is, this is the second foundation of mindfulness, Vedana. I'll explain it. And we often talk about the, the foundations of mindfulness. You know, Satipatthana is often translated as foundation of mindfulness, which is a fine translation. It can also be translated as, a, as ways of attending. And I like that. There's a sense of how is it for your practice to be a kind of attending to yourself, attending to yourself, whether it's through the lens of the body or the, or the mind or the teachings or, or Vedana. And um, you know, every, every moment of our experience, there, there's a particular valence to it. We often don't notice this, but every moment of experience there is, it has a quality of either being pleasant or being unpleasant, or being, you know, more neutral, not so strongly pleasant or, or unpleasant. And, and uh, this word Vedana, Vedana is the Pali word, but the word Vedana comes from the word Videti, which means both, it means to feel and to know. To feel and to know. Bodily and mental feelings. So, I'm going to be using the word feeling tone to talk about Vedana, 
this kind of valence of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And so when I use the word feeling tone, I'm actually not talking about emotions. I use the word emotion to talk about emotion. And getting in touch, I mean, right now you can kind of sense overall, is this experience pleasant listening to a talk? Maybe you're in a lot of body pain and that's what mostly is getting your attention and the overall experience is unpleasant. Maybe you're feeling just kind of, you know, ah, I'm here, kind of neutral. And, and um, working with Vedana, it's, it's intuitive. It's something that you can begin to get a feel for in, in your practice. Vedana is deeper than, than preferences. You know, we're really good at knowing what our preferences are. Our preferences around food, our preferences around practice, our preferences around what we see when we open our eyes out there. The Vedana is actually this more moment-to-moment tending um, to, to the, um, this quality of feeling tone. And with mindfulness, we are not so much aiming to dismiss the feeling tone or to be shaped by it, that we're really here to illuminate this, this dimension of experience with some kind of of clarity. Because the more that we see uh, Vedana and what comes next, the more that you can get a feel for some of where your tangles come from, some of where the sense of friction, a sense of something's not quite right, may come from. So an example of Vedana, like if you're, if you're eating a warm chocolate chip cookie, and you know it might taste really sweet. The sweetness isn't actually the Vedana, but the fact that it's pleasant is the Vedana. <coughs> so it's not the quality of sweetness, that's a description, but it's the fact that it's pleasant. But to somebody else, or to some of you, eating a warm chocolate chip cookie might not be pleasant at all. It might bring up... Um, you know, if, you're, if it's a wheat cookie and you're glue, you, know, you have celiac disease, even the taste of that may be really unpleasant because you know it's going to make you sick. Um, so, so Vedana, it's not in the object. It's not fixed. It's not universal. It's subjective. We're conditioned. If, um, it's different in different cultures. If, if you were to see... Well, well and studies have shown that the images of two women kissing or two men kissing or, two, or a woman and a man kissing brings up very different Vedana for the same viewer often or maybe bring up very different Vedana for different viewers depending upon how that, where that viewer is, is situated. So it's not in the image itself. It's in the relationship to the image. And so much of our experience of Vedana is related to our thoughts and our views, much of which aren't even conscious, much of which we just absorb um, living our lives. I, I, uh, Brian's great on teaching, teaching on implicit bias from a Dharma perspective, and I recently, I, you know, I go through and do those um, the implicit bias tests, there are so many of them, but I recently did one around um, implicit bias 
um, you, you know, the test that basically is your bias toward preferring youth or preferring older age. You know, it was really, really interesting. And I was just, as I was getting ready to do that, I was just reflecting on like what strong um, preference for youth is true in the dominant culture in this country and how like youth is used in advertising in this way where there's this like positive Vedana because somebody doesn't have so many wrinkles. You know, what the heck is that about? And I was thinking about how, um, how we, we um, it's like the dying process, you know, it's often a process that's unpleasant and how much this culture has turned away from the, the dying process, from people in that dying process. And so many of us in, um, inherit a kind of um, ignorance or pain as people close to us go through that process. We're not prepared for it. But it's such, it's, you know, like such a part of life. So like, because something's perceived as unpleasant, like the whole structures, institutions, cultural norms, and it's, um, it's reinforcing both ways. Like the, um, the U.S. police force is deeply, um, has a deeply unexamined, um, rapid and powerful tendency to experience unpleasant Vedana with African-American women and men. You know, the statistics are different. It has a lot to do with Vedana. And, um, and so in the teachings, Vedana, it's, um, it's many places. It's not just a, an area that, that you can practice mindfulness. It's also, it's one of the aggregates. It's one... Um, dimension that's present in any moment of conditioned experience. Vedana is a link. It's a link in the, in the teaching of dependent origination, which I'm not going to get that into tonight. But um, Vedana basically conditions the mind state of craving. Vedana conditions a mind state of craving, of wanting. And you know what happens when we get really caught up in craving or wanting, right? We go, we go right into the cycle, we get caught, that's it. This is why we're, why we're practicing mindfulness. So beginning to work with Vedana. Um, I, know, I know this might sound a little heady so far, but it's really important to understand because it's a key. It's really a key to unlocking some of your deepest conditioning. On our hike today down, um, we were going down through the, kind of between the two ponds, and I looked to the right, and I saw a duck. And I was so happy to see that duck. I was like, there was pleasant Vedana for me. And I watched my mind right away go into, well, what about the babies? Aren't there babies? Can I see the babies? I want more duck. You know? <laughs> it was like, that's what happened. You know? and, and actually, there ended up being, I saw more ducks. And I was just watching, like, the, the greed, <laughs> the, as if the mama duck wasn't enough. You know? And it was because there was some experience of pleasant, and I wanted more ducks. This happens all the time. If you had the experience of, like, sitting, eating your lunch, and maybe the first day you had lunch here, the view of the trees was, like, freaking amazing, just stellar, so cool, so beautiful. You know, it might be that here on the third day of the retreat, the view of the trees is like, you know, 
all right. <laughs> kind of get used to it. Comes a little more neutral than it was the first day. Or maybe it's the other way around. Maybe you're liking it more because you're getting comfortable here. But it's like it's not in the view of the trees. It's not in the duck. It's in the conditioning. It's, it's in um, a relationship to what is being known. And Vedana happens, happens through the sense doors. Brian gave you instruction on the porch today, many of you, around kind of going through um, a more direct way of perceiving through each of your senses. And, you know, in any given moment of our lives, we're in this process, some constellation of seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, and and the activity of the mind, the heart-mind. And so, um, as there's a, like if you're sitting here meditating, you hear the sounds of the pots banging in the kitchen, right? There's a, there's a, that's called a, um, like a sense object, and you have an ear, which is a sense door. And you have consciousness, and the three come together, and there's the experience of hearing that happens. And usually we hear pots banging in the kitchen, and there's the experience. I hear pots banging in the kitchen. Not so pleasant. The body braces. I wish I could just go outside and meditate. And, um, and it's really interesting, you know, when we think about how the process of hearing, like with what, what's actually happening when we perceive sound, I'm not an audiologist, but I do know that vibrations travel in from the kitchen and these tiny little bones in the ear vibrate. And when that happens, these hair cells vibrate. And that's translated into our brain as the experience of hearing. And the, the, the conceptual mind manufactures this into the perception of, I'm hearing pots banging in the kitchen. Completely natural. And um, I know for me on the hike today, there were many, many moments where you know, I was aware of seeing, hearing, the pressure of my feet on the ground, some of the delight I was feeling as I was walking. And there was just this sense of these, these dimensions of experience happening quite freely, happening quite spontaneously. There wasn't as much um, holding on to it. You know, that place where, in the language we, we, we've used some on this retreat, where, where um, there is a thinning of the sense of separate self. And there may be more of a feeling of like life living, living through you. It's a feeling of life living through me. And there was a way that while there was Vedana, the mind wasn't taking it and running with it just then. The Vedana wasn't giving rise to craving. It's not always like that, that's for sure. Ajahn Shah, I'm going to use the word heart and mind interchangeably. Actually, before I read this, I want to share, share with you another story about these sensadors and how they relate to mind states. Um, 
one time I was sitting a three-month retreat, and you know, that's a long time to practice meditation. And so, um, you know, my mind was somewhat collected, and there was a little bit of attachment to the, the states where meditation can be pleasant. I was enjoying the sitting um, because it was pleasant. And then there was the experience of going into the dining hall for lunch. And I was getting really caught up with what was going on in the dining hall at lunch because I would go in there and I wasn't in my pleasant sitting meditation anymore. And I had all this judgment going on of these people wiping their noses and grabbing the tongs to the salad and going through the line and touching every single utensil. And it seemed so loud in there. And um, I, I just was filled with aversion every time I would go in to eat. And I was watching it be this whole thing for me around like, hmm, maybe I could take extra food at breakfast and not have to go in to deal with the lunch and I could be meditating more, so it'd be great. And so I went and I said to my teacher, like, I'm so in aversion around lunch and I think maybe I need to look at my family of origin because maybe there's something with food that I don't realize. And um, I was like really working on it. And my, my teacher said to me, Erin, stop that now. Please stop that. And, and the teacher said to me, like, what's happening is really simple. You're going in the dining hall. You're seeing. And it's unpleasant. And then you are just, you know, going crazy with aversion. And I was like, oh, got it. You know, it's like really actually that simple. And I was trying to do a big therapy project out of it in my meditation. And, um, and it actually was really a turning point for me because the next day I went in to eat lunch and the, the, the response was the same. It was, I didn't like it at all. I went in to eat lunch. The judgment was in the mind. I was seeing these people and I was experiencing it as unpleasant. And it was no problem. The awareness could be with that. The awareness could be with the experience of unpleasant. The awareness could be with the experience of aversion. And there was some measure of freedom in that. It was no problem. It was just what was happening. I didn't have to become that. You know, and it was just like, oh, this is like the power of the Dharma. <laughs> this is the power of really some of how this practice can cut through and shift. It was really a, a one of those moments in my practice. Um, Ajahn Shah. About this mind, in truth, there's nothing really wrong with it. It is intrinsically pure. Within itself, this mind, this heart, is already peaceful. That the heart-mind is not peaceful these days is because it follows moods. The real heart-mind is simply an aspect of nature. It becomes peaceful or agitated because moods deceive it. The untrained mind, the untrained heart, is stupid. Sense impressions come and trick it into happiness, suffering, gladness, sorrow, but the heart's true nature is none of these things. That gladness or sadness is not the mind, but only a mood coming to deceive us. The untrained mind gets lost and follows these things. 
it forgets itself. So we are remembering, we are seeing into the nature of what obscures that kind of connection. I want to talk a little bit about pleasure because pleasure is something that we hear, I, I'm hearing coming up for people and got questions about, you know, like, am I getting too intoxicated being here? Is this intoxicating? You know, is it, um, am I gorging myself on pleasure, on nature? Am I, um, and I don't want to say that pleasure is the only thing happening. It's definitely not. And even in pleasure, there can be a seed of what is really unpleasant because we, we don't know how to be with it sometimes. But, um, you know, there's such a, I feel like as a, a culture in this country is in this kind of hypnotic state when it comes to pleasure and a hypnotic state about the, the true nature of pleasure because the conditioning is to to think that the pleasure is external. You know, we project pleasure into all sorts of objects. We love the objects onto which we project pleasure. <coughs> I love, I, I have this habit after I teach sometimes, if it's been a tough retreat, I have this kind of um, triple creme brie cheese with porcini mushrooms in it <laughs> that I love. You know, and I go home and I watch my mind pulling the cheese out of the drawer, like about to have a bite of this creamy cheese. And there's a sense of, don't get me wrong, the cheese is pleasurable. I really <laughs> like the taste of this cheese. But um, it's not the cheese, actually, that I'm seeking. There's a way that somehow the experience of eating this cheese and what I put onto it like helps me settle into myself a little deeper. It relaxes me. It's not the cheese I'm wanting, it's the relaxation I'm wanting. And there's a way that, you know, certain people and places and situations help us to settle into the truth of who we are a little deeper. And that's what's actually more pleasurable, is being in touch with the truth, being in touch with our own awareness in a deeper way. It's not in the cheese. And um, and we miss the suffering that comes from pleasure known only as gratification. Pleasure as the cheese. Pleasure as the, the sitting where it all comes together. Pleasure as being here and thinking, you know, everybody likes me. Um, there can be a, um, the mind does not want to experience the sensation of loss. We want to repeat, repeat pleasure and feel good. And so there can be a sense of almost a narrowing or pursuit mode when it comes to getting the next hit. You know, we want it. And yet at the same time, um, there's a kind of pleasure that comes not from the gratification that now I get what I want, but that comes from a kind of renunciation, like what's happening here. 
There is a pleasure that comes from um, letting go. You know, uh, the pleasure that comes when you're doing your practice and there's moments of, of calm. They may, they may seem few and far between, but there's moments of calm. And those moments of calm aren't because there's some external gratification happening. The calm is, is internally sourced. It's not from gratification, it's from a kind of letting go. Calm, happiness, sukha, generosity come when we um, abandon that cycle of craving. So it looks like, you know, it's like, it's like even when you get what you, something where you get a hit of pleasure, the real pleasure is because the craving isn't there in that moment. The craving is not, is not pleasurable. So um, this practice, we are cultivating a kind of, um, we are opening to the possibility. The Buddha taught about a kind of Vedana. He uses the term unworldly Vedana. I don't like that term because I just get suspicious of, of transcendence. I am so into being in this world. And not transcending, but this kind of Vedana that is um, the pl- pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral that doesn't have really much of anything to do with external gratification. You, you know what I'm talking about. You, you've had those moments here. Um, and there's a lot of freedom in the movement from attributing pleasure to an object to noticing the peace of just simple awareness, to noticing, you know, like to not getting involved with it so much, just just tasting that peace, the peace of, of awareness. Um, and as the practice deepens, we begin to meet like you know the, the running out with more more love, more steady awareness and some other possibility opens up. The, the Buddha is very clear in the suttas that somebody whose mind isn't trained knows no escape from what is unpleasant other than getting a sensual pleasure. It's very clear about that. And when you actually let that in, like that's, that's rough. If there's no escape from unpleasant experience, then filling with the next pleasant experience. Like that's a, con- a mind constantly seeking, constantly seeking. And the whole world of most advertising in this country um, encourages that. I have a CRV, a Honda CRV, and I saw an ad a few years ago, and it says C R A V E, like crave. <laughs> I'm driving this car that's advertised to crave. <laughs> Not good for the self-image of a Dharma teacher. <laughs> but like that's that's what we deal with. That's what we deal with. And in this practice, we are um, we are finding another way. We are finding a possibility that is outside of the cycle of um, gratification. Because there's a danger in that. Because every time we we gratify ourselves, it reinforces that habit. And I want to be clear that, um, that pleasure is also 
really great. A lot of the latest trauma research really shows how um, healing, deeply, deeply healing, um, the experience of pleasure can be for us. It can help to regulate the system to practice in a deeper way. It's all about if it comes from craving or non-craving. You can be totally mindful in a moment of pleasure. It doesn't have to feed the aversion at all. And, and just to name that Vedana, sometimes there's this thought that if you get fully awakened, you're, like things are, you're not going to have the experience of something unpleasant. As if that goes out the window, it does not go out the window. You know, the Buddha had back pain. He probably didn't suffer the way I might if I had back pain, but he had back pain. It was uncomfortable. Um, the Arhants would grieve when someone they cared for died. And it's like it wasn't just um, rainbows and unicorns. So, so the, the real satisfaction... I mean, gratification is great, we all do that, it's no problem, but the real satisfaction comes from this long process of conscious awareness when the craving begins to let go, it begins to stop making sense. We begin to recognize the process that's at work. There's a, in the sutta, the, the bubble sutta, and they use the word bhikkhus. I'm going to change that to practitioners because these words are these words are meant for people just like us. Suppose practitioners that in the autumn, when it's raining and big raindrops are falling, a water bubble arises and bursts on the surface of the water. A person with good sight would inspect it, ponder it, and carefully investigate it and it would appear, appear to them to be void, hollow, insubstantial. For what substance could there be in a water bubble? So too, practitioners, whatever kind of feeling there is, whether past, future, or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, a practitioner inspects it, ponders it, and carefully investigates it, and it would appear to them to be void, hollow, insubstantial. <coughs> For what substance could there be in a feeling? So he's comparing like a water bubble, like when it was raining today and the rain like hit the pond and like um, a bubble. He's comparing a water bubble arising and bursting like just that momentary, to, to being kind of like the experience of feeling tone. Like, and, and feeling tone, when we really look, being quite insubstantial, actually. We don't know this fully. It's, it's, it seems so compelling. We are so driven by pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. It's like really interesting to consider when we look in a very momentary way, the, the insubstantiality of Vedana, of the experience of Vedana. And as I say this, I want to be really um, 
you want to be on the lookout for spiritual bypassing. Because like if you're really hurting and you just say, oh, this is just like a bubble. You know, this is just <coughs> unpleasant data. That, that's usually not so helpful. But from one perspective, that just can give a, a, a perspective to us. So what we're doing is really moving from reactivity, you know, something's unpleasant, we go into aversion, something's neutral, we space out, something's pleasant, we want more of it. We're, we're moving from this cycle of reactivity to um, giving some kind of space. You know, with the instructions Brian gave yesterday in the field, the experience of, of wanting or pleasant, when it lands in that kind of space, there's a lot of room for it to move. There's not the same kind of pressure. Ajahn Suchito, who, who taught here um, last year when we were here, yeah, he um, has this great definition of spaciousness as being an absence of pressure. An absence of pressure. So as we practice these moments of, of mindful awareness, of loving awareness, we're actually creating creating more space so that there can be um, less pressure, so that the tangle isn't all there is, but there's room for the untangle to happen. And I want to say that just like there's the um, the unworldly, the pleasant vedana that comes from a place that's that's very very wholesome, a place of letting go that's wise. There's also um, unpleasant Vedana that comes from a place of letting go and that's wise. You know, the idea that a practice of waking up and letting go is going to just lead to more immediate happiness couldn't be further from the truth. (laughs) Somebody was talking with me today about like knowing that they were opening to the Dharma in a deeper way and knowing it would, it meant change and like feeling really scared in some ways because not, not being totally in charge of what that change would look like. And so there are, there are um, times in the practice where um, you know, we're very much on the path and very much in a process of, of letting go and cultivating clear seeing where there can be... Um, a deep experience of unpleasant, where there can be a deep experience of what used to be enchanting, what used to be satisfying isn't anymore. It can be very uncomfortable, very, very disorienting. It can often be a time when, you know, we like don't even want to practice anymore. And uh, the Buddha taught that this is a, like a really wholesome kind of unpleasant Vedana that is a kind of like dukkha that we tolerate in the process of waking up. The suffering that leads to the end, the end of suffering. So, so if you're practicing and things are getting harder, it, it doesn't mean that something's wrong. Sometimes that happens because of the um, delusion that's falling away. We like more than that. That... Um, Philip Slater, he says, despair is the only cure for our illusion. 
Without despair, we cannot transfer our allegiance to reality itself. It's a kind of mourning period for our fantasies. He says, some people do not survive this despair, but no major change within a person can occur without it. So sometimes we go through these, these, um, these quite unpleasant times that are part of, um, part of letting go, part of the heart's response to letting go. And, and, and there's also a kind of um, unworldly neutral experience of, of just very deep, deep um, equanimity when there's more freedom in the mind with the experience of neutrality than pleasant. There's just no, no cycle there of the gratification. So I'm sharing this all with you as an invitation to, um, if you're like if you're caught, check in with what the Vedana is and check in with what sense doors it's occurring at. You know, like judging mind, maybe a sense door of the mind, a thought that's unpleasant Vedana. And like just beginning to see that can be part of, of, it, of it beginning to um, lose its power. Notice how it changes. You know, like sometimes we think like, the wanting is never going to go away. You know, it's like going to kill me. It's like, you know, the wanting can be so strong in one moment, and then the next moment you're thinking about what's for dinner. Like, it's gone. Notice how, how Vedana, it arises and it, 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 it changes, it passes. It's so momentary. It really is like that bubble. And the less identified with the Vedana we are, the more we see that, that insubstantial nature. And, and you know, back to the kind of opening to more love. Um, yeah, when, we, when the awareness becomes steadier, Vedana doesn't um, disturb or rock us quite so much. So it's really a, a, a point of exploration in the practice that can lead to a lot of um, freeing in the mind and in the heart. I'd like to end with just a poem. Many of you know this poem by, by Roger Keyes, Hokusai says, and I think it's apropos for what we're doing here together as human beings on this land. Hokusai says, look carefully. He says, pay attention, notice. He says, keep looking, stay curious. He says, there is no end to seeing. He says, look forward to getting old. He says, keep changing, you just get more who you really are. He says, get stuck, accept it, repeat yourself as long as it's interesting. He says, keep doing what you love. He says, keep praying. He says, every one of us is a child. Every one of us is ancient. Every one of us has a body. He says, every one of us is frightened. 
He says every one of us has to find a way to live with fear. He says everything is alive. Shells, buildings, people, fish, mountains, trees, wood is alive. Water is alive. Everything has its own life. Everything lives inside us. He says live with the world inside you. He says it doesn't matter if you draw or write books. It doesn't matter if you saw wood or catch fish. It doesn't matter if you sit at home and stare at the ants on your veranda or the shadows of the trees and grasses in your garden. It matters that you care. It matters that you feel. It matters that you notice. It matters that life lives through you. Contentment is life living through you. Joy is life living through you. Satisfaction and strength is life living through you. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Love, feel, let life take you by the hand. Let life live through you. Just take a moment of quiet. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.